Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and if this is your first time to join us, you picked a great place to start. Our guest is Bruce Feiler, author of six consecutive best-selling books and the inspiration behind NBC's hit television show, A Council of Dads. Our topic, the impact of life transitions, the facade of the midlife crisis, and why meaning plays such a critical role in optimizing how we travel this road called life. Based on his data, just about all of us are going through a transition right now, or we're about to. Today, we'll talk about how to make it count. If you're a coach, do not miss the virtual coaching retreat and symposium taking place September 19th and 20th. It is not only a great way to garner some low-cost continuing education credits and fill your coaching toolbox, it's also the perfect way to relight that fire that got you into the profession in the first place and dial in your plans to make the coming year your best year yet. All the details, including recent announcement about our latest keynote speaker edition, those are available at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. And as, as always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions about anything coaching-related, results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now it's transition time with six-time best-selling author Bruce Feiler on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Bruce, it's a privilege to have you here on the Catalyst Health Wellness Performance Coaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate your enthusiasm and your interest, and uh, let's have a good conversation. Well, going through your book, enthusiasm is an easy one after reading that. Let's let's start, let's set the stage about this whole idea of transitions by mm -hmm. jumping over to your five truths that you talk about in the last chapter. Number five reminds us wow. that transitions are essential to life and that we should see them, and I love this, as fertile terrain we can gain sustenance from if, huge if, we view them as openings, we might just open up to them. So don't shield your eyes when the scary part starts, and I love what you did with this, that's where the heroes are made. Awesome statement, fun statement, powerful statement. I'll just let you run with that one. Yeah, it's so interesting to start at the end <laughs> because that sounds like a great piece of wisdom that took me five painful years to yeah, discover. Right? Yeah, obviously. So you know, and I think that you know, when I when I think of transitions now, I I think of them uh, in some ways. Hearing you read that from the end of my book as to how I thought of them before, we have been told that these are difficult periods mm. that we have to grit and grind our way through. You know, I'm even grumpy. I'm going to start with, you're starting with enthusiasm. How about I start with grumpiness? I'm really <laughs> grumpy with this idea of resilience, right? Because resilience suggests, and resilience actually is a physics term, and it suggests that it comes from a spring, right? So you pull a spring back and it bounces back. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of what we've been told. And the reason I'm grumpy about it is because we don't bounce back usually. We bounce sideways or forwards or to a different mm. place altogether. And I think that, you know, to go even more to the end, and then we'll double back to the beginning. But in the pandemic, when the pandemic first hit, we all, I think, spent months thinking that we were going back. And this is on my mind because I've been writing a piece about this for CNN.com, but we thought we were going to go back. We just had to get through it, right? We'll mitigate, we'll social distance, and then we'll get our old lives back. Right, right. But the longer this went on, the longer we realized uh, we're not going back. And therefore, there is a transition ahead. And kind of what became the kind of passion play in this whole project was, 
what's a transition? Like, this is not a yeah, word yeah, yeah. that's been in favor and talking about how we navigate them. It's something that people talked about in the seventies, but it's not something we've really talked about in 40 years, which is why lo and behold, this book unveils the first new model for how to navigate life transitions. And my entire kind of premise here is that we have to reclaim some old wisdom. And we'll start with the wisdom and the title, which is that life is in the transition. That's a William James phrase from a century ago. And he had it right, right? He said life is in the transitions even more in the terms connected. And that's a kind of old-fashioned way of saying that we think that the stable parts are where life is and the transition is just something we have to suffer through. But as you know, and as my book found and I did in all these conversations, tease out the idea that we spend half of our lives in transition. Mm. So if we think of them as just awful periods, we're missing half of our life and we can't afford to do that. It's just such a powerful perspective. And, and again, maybe let's just come back to a touch more because I think if people get this, it, it that's all that's that's a huge step in the right direction that transitions aren't they don't have to be negative. It depends on how we view them. Is that am I hearing that right? Well, I'll go even one step further. There are transitions even out of positive experiences. Right. So the big no, we can come back to this later if you want. But the essence of what I did was I went out having gone through a massive life quake, I call it myself, right? A life quake is a huge wrenching change in our lives that's higher on the Richter scale of consequences and has aftershocks that last for years. So I went through one of these periods at cancer. I almost went bankrupt. My dad, who has Parkinson's, tried to kill himself six times in 12 weeks, as you know. And I started a storytelling project with my dad, and that worked, and we can get into this later, but that set me off on this path of collecting hundreds of life stories of Americans all across the country, all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states. And then I had, at the end of this process, a 1,000 hours of interviews, 6,000 pages of transcripts. And mind you, I didn't go in looking for transitions or life quakes. <laughs> That's not what I did. I went looking for wisdom of how you get through difficult times. Right. And what happened was I began to see certain patterns because one of the things that happens when you go through a life quake is that you feel isolated, alone. No one else has ever been through this. You will never get through this. And what do I do? They, you seem incredibly helpless. But if you look at enough of them, as I did hour after hour, day after day, year after year, certain patterns begin to become um, apparent. And so the kind of big idea here is that we go through these kinds of life quakes three, four, five times in our lives on average. And I would say the signature piece of data in this whole study is that the average length of time it takes to get through these is five years. So that's not five years until you're functioning, but that five years until you're through it and you've said goodbye and you've gone through that messy middle that I talk about and mm -hmm. you have a new beginning. But if you do the math, three to five in a lifetime, four, five, six years, that's 25 years, that's half of our adult lives, you're going in transition. And so this, my book was finished, you know, essentially in late 2019. And here I was going to say to the world, like, you spend half your lives in transition, you or someone you know, is going through one now, if you, look at the, if you do the math, every household uh, should have someone and I was going to try to persuade you right. that, that was the case. And try to say, if you come on this journey with me, and you buy this book, we're going to make it easier. Whoa, lo and behold, <laughs> my book emerges at a time 
when for the first time in a century, the entire planet is going through a life quake and everybody's in a transition. I no longer have to persuade anybody that they're in a transition. And so the point is, you can't just look at this as a period that you have to get over, get through, get around. Survive. Under. If you do not look at it as a period where you have the opportunity to change certain habits, you know, shed certain aspects of your personality, including some of the ones that you didn't like, and then kind of remake yourself anew, you are wasting half of your life. And in particular, you are wasting the life that you are in right now. Mm, powerful. On, on that concept of life quakes, you, you, you talk about they're not just big disruptors, but they necessitate that you assign meaning to the event and accept it will lead to some kind of positive potential transition. Why is, it so impo- why is that meaning piece so important when you're in the midst of that? You're going to make me talk about all the things I'm grumpy about. Is that what this interview is going to be about? Because I just said a few minutes ago that I was grumpy about resilience. And now I'm going to say that I'm grumpy about Round happiness. two. Now I'm going to say that I'm grumpy about happiness, right? So we are 20 years into positive psychology when we, and positive psychology, incredibly important corrective to a century of psychology where people essentially looked at people who were deviant or had, who had psychoses or problems. Positive psychology you know, basically begins at the turn of the century and says, well, let's look at people who are high-functioning mm-hmm. and they, you know, what are they doing right and so the rest of us can learn from that. That then kind of leads to the happiness movement and a kind of fetish that we have with happiness. The problem with happiness is that happiness is fleeting. Happiness is kind of momentary. Like dogs can be happy, in the words of one Roy Baumeister, who's a great researcher here. And what happens when you're going through an unhappy time? If we reframe this from a situation where we focus on happiness, where we focus on meaning, and what's the difference between happiness and meaning? Happiness is momentary. Meaning is over time. Happiness focuses on joyful experiences. Meaning focuses on sometimes difficult experiences and how we find identity and meaning and purpose within them. So meaning, happiness is kind of a moment in time and meaning is a story. And that really gets now to the foundation of what I did, which was talk to people about the story they tell about themselves. And this story, stop for a second, everybody listening. Think, you know, what, you know, the story that's in your head about where you came from and where you're going, you know, what's important to you. If you got a call right now, like you had to go to the hospital to see a loved one, you would tell the story of how you met that person and why, what role they play in your life. That story of who you are, is not part of you. It is you in a fundamental way. Like life is the story that you tell yourself. And so what I'm talking about here is the process of when you have an interruption in that story, when a wolf shows up in your fairy tale, how do you rewrite the story to accommodate how you reacted to the trouble, right? So this is what meaning is. Okay. Fundamentally, we all tell a story, but the stories we tell do not have meaning. We have to choose to assign meaning to the story. This is what Viktor Frankl said so famously in the Holocaust in Man's Search for Meaning, is that we have to decide what we want a story, an experience to be about. And so what I'm saying is, we think our lives are fairy tales, where there's a hero and there's a happy ending, but the truth is, what makes it a fairy tale is when the wolf shows up. Mm. Wolf may be a dragon, a downsizing, an ogre, a pandemic, whatever it is. And the question, and we want to tell a story that says we got through that wolf, we got through that difficult chapter in a way that we were able to find something constructive 
remake ourselves and then position ourselves to move forward in our lives. It seems like I remember you mentioned in there, hey, we could write the story. Why not write the one you like? Was there some concept about that of this is your call? And that's that's where you mentioned we choose the story. But didn't you even take it further and saying, come on, folks, this is your you you choose it. Why are you writing a sad story? Let's let's find this meaning and see where this is developing. Well, you are the narrator. Right. So you can choose to tell a story where yeah. you are victim, right? Where you are lazy, yeah. you know, where you are overcome, where you are defeated. Or you can tell a story where you were the victim of something and you overcame it. Yeah. You you were responded to a difficult period and got through it. You were walloped by life, as I was walloped by life, and you you were inert for a long time. But then you got up off the couch and you went to solve the problem. This is why I say that the life quake that you experience may be voluntary or involuntary. So it might be voluntary. A voluntary life quake is you decide to leave a bad marriage, right? You decide to get sober. You decide to change jobs because you want to. You decide to leave the workplace to have a uh, a child. So that's a voluntary life quake. That's still a big change, but you have initiated it. 47% 47% of the life quakes that I studied um, in the hundreds of people I talked to about this were voluntary. 53% were involuntary. So what's an involuntary life quake? You get into an accident and you lose your legs. You go off to war and you get your face blown off as Zach Herrick that I spoke to. You're driving in a car and you get your legs blown off as Eric Westover did. You know, your uh, spouse cheats on you and uh, walks out as many people that I talked to. You went through a tornado uh, as uh, uh, you know, as Jenny Wynn did uh, that I spoke to in, um, in in Joplin, Missouri. So you have something happen to you. So they're more or less half and half that we choose and other people choose. But the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition must be voluntary. Mm. You have to choose to lean in and go through the process of transitioning to a new self, which is, I think, leads us to this very interesting moment that we're in right now. Right, which is that we are in what I call a collective involuntary life quake, the first in a century, where we're all going through this together. And that's actually powerful, but also deceptive. And what's deceptive about it is, even though you and I are both going through this life quake, the life transition that we're going to execute out of it is going to be different. You may choose to move. Yeah. I may choose to you know, rejuggle, uh, kind of rejigger my parenting responsibilities because I have to work from home. Somebody else, um, you know, may choose to change their job. Somebody else might choose to leave their job. Someone else might choose to get sober uh, or finally face an addiction. So we are collectively going through the life quake, but the change, the personal change, the personal life transformation that each of us goes through will be different for each of us. Are there general patterns to the narrative we write? It, it, if So looking at, for example, me as a, a, as a, a sample example here, um, do I tend to write more positive narrations or is it story specific? Does the person who generally writes, you know, I, okay, I was a victim here, but then this happened and this built up to this and it led to that. Does that tend to be a pattern through people's lives that – if they're telling that story in a, a positive, overcoming, you get to be the hero at the end format, do they tend to do that? Do we tend to do that with most of our stories or is it situation specific? Did you see any pattern with that? Well, I love that question. And I think it's interesting. And so I'm going to answer it this way. 
So if you go back a century ago, most of us lived in a world where our meaning was assigned to us. Yes. Right. We had to live where our parents wanted us to live. We had to believe what our parents wanted us to believe. We often had to do what our parents wanted us to do, marry who our parents wanted us to marry. We did not have a lot of freedom. A great advance of the last century is we have a lot more freedom. Okay. So not only do men have that freedom, but of course now women have that freedom. Three quarters of women are working outside the home. That that obviously did not happen a century ago. For people who uh, want a sexual identity that might not have been welcomed in the community they grew up in, this is an enormous change. For people who want to change their religions, half of Americans in some context, to put some context to this, half of Americans change faith or denominations in the course of their lives. Four in 10 of us are in interfaith marriage something else that was unthinkable a century ago. So the good news is we all get to write our own story. Congratulations. You can be who you want to be. There's a <laughs> mammoth change in the history of the world. The problem is uh, too many choices, right? Is this what I want to believe? Is this where I want to live? Do I want this job? Do I want to change jobs? Right? The average millennial now was going to change jobs 15 times and change skill sets three times. Okay. And going to move 11.7 times. Right. So the, you know, you even one of the interesting kind of nuggets of this process, which is that this idea of nonlinearity of a constant change that sort of is the kind of the backbone of, of life is in the transitions. Xers get this much more than boomers and millennials even more than Xers. Right. There's a kind of transition gap, I call it, between often parents in their 60s who don't really understand kids in their late 20s and 30s. They're like, what do you mean you're having a baby before you get married, right? What do you mean you're moving without knowing what you're going to do? What do you mean you're leaving one job without knowing what the next job is going to be? Like those of us who are boomers, and I was born in 1964, we're kind of haunted by the ghost of linearity in a way that young people are not. Okay, so great, awesome, human, great breakthrough. We can write our own story. The problem is we get kind of writer's block writing our own story because there's too many options before us and you can't change everything at once because it's simply too much. Now, it turns out that there are pillars that we use, kind of levers that we use um, to navigate this meaning. And I call them, as you know, the ABCs of meaning. Okay. So one way, one kind of one of the building blocks of meaning is agency. That's the A. That's what we do, what we make, what create. That's our, our work lives. Like that's our, the thing that's, that, that, that we do in the world. But that's not the only pillar of meaning. The second one is the B of the ABCs. That's belonging. That's our relationships, our connections, um, our, you know, our families, our colleagues, our uh, fellow board members, our co-religionists, whatever it might be. That's our belonging. And the C in the ABC, so A is agency, B is belonging. The C is a cause. That's a calling. That's something higher than ourselves. So this story that we tell turns out to be three stories that we tell. Uh, there's what I call the me story. That's your agency. Mm-hmm. I think that you're doing. There's our we story. That's your belonging. And there's your C story. And that's your the story, I call it. So we have our me story, our we story, and our the story. And the answer to your question, in my view, in terms of the pattern, is that each of us prioritizes one of those stories. And I learned this by accident because I started asking people, as you know, in my book, I started asking people, what shape is your life? And what I was thinking of was, you know, how do you view the trajectory of your life? Not a straight line, but kind of an up and down line. And if I would have answered that question, an up and down line, right? Like a winding road, a river, a kind of a mountainside, like a stock, a lot of people say stock market up and down. 
Like that's a line. So let me just ask you. So what shape is your line? I had a feeling you were going to ask me that and I did not ponder it prior. I would say it has been a roller coaster. Okay. So that's an up and down life. So that's a line in my construct. Sure. That's a kind of an agency first story. But what happened was I started asking people and then I asked this one guy, Michael Angelo, and he's a, he's a beautician. He's had a kind of series of relationships. He's gay. And, and he said to me, I said, what shape is your life, Michael? And he says, a heart. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I'm asking you about the trajectory <laughs> of your life. And he's like, no, the shape of my life is a heart. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I mean, how has your life moved through time? And he's like, Bruce, you don't understand. The shape of my life is a heart. Meaning I don't care so much about my, the ups and downs of my own professional life. I'm much more interested in the relationships that I'm in. And as long as those are stable, I can handle the, the vicissitudes, if you will, of my life. And that's when I was like, whoa, like I'm not really getting this. I'm like so assuming everybody's like me. And so it turns out a lot of people are we people. People said that the shape of their life is a house. Um, I talked to a woman named Michelle Swaim who grew up in a broken marriage outside of uh, Boston. Her mother wasn't really interested. She would sometimes wait for hours after sports practice before her mother picked her up. She married her high school sweetheart. She became a very intense jogger. She became anorexic. It was down to half an apple a day. She couldn't get pregnant because that's what happens when you're anorexic. She slips on the ice one day and she ends up in the hospital. And she has a vision that God says, I did this to you. Her husband who's a preacher comes in and says, I had a vision too. God says, he did it to you. We need to change. They went on to adopt 11 children from eight refugee countries around the world. And she said the shape of her life is a minivan. And that's something that contains people. Her relationships now matter more to her than her, her own um, accomplishments. And my wife, for example, who works with entrepreneurs around the world, she says the shape of her life is a light bulb. So she and my construct is a CAB. She's a calling first, then an agency, then a belonging. I'm an ABC. So like agency, belonging, cause, where are you? You just said your agency first, probably. So what's, what's going to be second? Calling or? Calling's or, pretty uh, strong. Yeah. yeah and so that might even be first. And, and so, um, right. So the, the, the point of all this is that the answer to the question of is there, are there phenotypes? Yes. Whichever of those stories is most important to you, that's the one that you're going to lead with. But what happens in a life quake is that we shape shift. We reimagine what's most important to us. So here we are in this pandemic and some people are going to say, you know what? I, you know what? Maybe I need to pull back from my work and spend more time with my family because my kids are working from home or my parents need me. Or some people um, have been, say, a primary caretaker of children. And then the children leave and they're an empty nester. And they say, I want to do, I want to give back more. Some people have been giving back and they burn out. They want to do more time, something more for themselves. So in times of transition, we rethink and reweight the, the basic building blocks that would give us meaning. That was a, that was, that was, that was good. Um, Think about circling back on it, but let's, let's go ahead and jump in because we've got so many things I want to cover here. Chapter 10, you talk about the, the value of writing about our life experiences. Why is this journaling process so beneficial in and following the transition process? Well, let me just take a second and talk about the transition process and say that when you first go into a transition, you either feel chaotic and out of control, like you have a 317 item to do list mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> for that kind of person. Sure. Or you feel sluggish and like in a fetal position and I'm never going to move. But look at enough of them 
as I said earlier, and certain patterns begin to appear. And so the, so the biggest pattern is that transitions involve three phases. So the first phase is what I call the long goodbye, where you say goodbye to the old you. The second phase is the messy middle, where you shed certain habits and uh, begin to create new ones. And the third is where you, it's called the new beginning, where you unveil your new self. And it turns out that each of us is, you know, for the first century, the way people talked about transitions, we were told you had to do them in order. First, you had to say goodbye. In fact, Arnold van Gennep, who kind of invented the idea of transitions and rites of passage in Germany 100 years ago, said that a transition is, is, is like walking out of one room, walking down a hallway, and then walking in another room. I could not disagree more. Like, <laughs> it is not linear like that at all. What it is like you're in one room and you leave one room and then you go to the hallway and then you forgot something in the old room and then you go back and then, oh, you see something in the new room and you run get it, but then you're back in the hallway. Like it's completely nonlinear and that construct is entirely misleading and puts way too much pressure. Like think if you got divorced and you have children with your, your prior spouse, you may be married to somebody new, but you're still saying goodbye because you're still co-parenting with, you know, with the original spouse. Like, like these are much more nonlinear. People tend to be good at one phase. I call this your transition superpower and bad at another phase. I actually, before I got, we began this conversation, I was in a conversation with a local television station in Pittsburgh, excuse me, in Philadelphia. And they had assembled a group of people who were struggling in the pandemic and they were telling their stories and I was reacting. And it was so interesting. Like all of the people in the stories said they were having a really hard time saying goodbye, acknowledging that the job that they had for 21 years is not coming back, mm. right? That the lifestyle that they had for 21 yeah. years is not coming back. Like the, this other woman was saying like, you know, how she, the kids went up to school and for nine years she went out to work and she couldn't do it as a single parent. Like we're not coming back. And they both were saying saying goodbye is really hard for them. I think in this moment, <laughs> saying goodbye is a kryptonite for all of us because it's just so sad and we had nothing to do with it. Uh, it just happened to us. So, the reason I answered your question by going into these phases is like people tend to be bad at one and they tend to be good at one and they tend to get stuck at one. And the various tools that I identify, accept your emotions, use rituals, chat habits, creativity, are, they tend to belong to certain parts of the process. But creativity is something that is central to all of these. That when we shed our old selves, it creates a certain space and we begin to create our new selves. And I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by this. Like maybe I was naive, but I was surprised by this. How incredible acts of creativity. I talked to a woman who uh, was a uh, uh, psychologist in Emory caught up in a faculty scandal and she lost her job and she started painting birdhouses. I talked to a woman who was a retired chemistry professor in Alabama uh, who uh, had cancer, had to leave her husband because her husband didn't want to take care of her when she had cancer. And she s- decides she has all this time. She's going to fulfill a childhood dream and start to do become a ballerina. So she takes adult ballet classes. And she was surprised to learn she couldn't be on point on day one. <laughs> As a dad of teenage ballerinas, you can't be on point on day one. Um, I talked to a guy who had his face... Uh, African-American sergeant in the army who had his face shot off by the Taliban. 31 surgeries between the tip of his nose and the tip of his chin, including having his tongue sewn back on. And he learned to cook and he learned to write. (laughs) And we'll get to that in a second. And he learned to paint. In fact, he said he splatters paint. He said, you know that guy, Jackson Pollock? Like him. I was like, 
Really? If I told your football playing self in high school that you were going to splatter paint and write poetry and like, you know, saute salmon, what would you have thought? He was like, it was stupid. But that's how you create yourself anew. And the and writing turns out to be a powerful one. People write all sorts of things. They write journal entries. They write you know, short stories. But they also write jokes. I talked to a woman uh, who went through a horrific year uh, where her husband had an accident and she had to take care of him and they lost their health insurance. And she got through this whole year and she said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become a stand-up comedian. And so she writes, starts writing jokes. <laughs> and like she goes to the comedy clubs and she's like in her 50s and all this. She said there's just a bunch of boys who, you know, who were telling sex jokes and they looked at me like I was their mom and it was really awkward. But particularly this idea of writing, what's called expressive writing, where, you know, three days in a row, if you write for 15, 20 minutes. And I made my kids do this, by the way, when the pandemic started happening. And mm. we were not happy with that at all. Uh, but the reason is because in the beginning, you're falling back into that trope that we talked about before. You're a victim. It's awful. You know, how dare thy school close or my boss fire me when I was doing nothing wrong. That's how you begin. You get it out. But over time, over a couple of days, you begin to put your, to, you know, to take some distance from the story that you're telling and you begin to make sense of it. Find a meaning in it. Find yourself in the story and find a narrative that allows you to get through it. That's how the creativity becomes part of the transition and part of the toolkit that we use and that I was able to identify and to kind of remind what I said earlier, this book, Life is in the Transitions, unveils the first new model for life transitions in 40 years because people haven't been talking about this idea because we all had the expectation that life was just going to go along and medicine was going to cure us and technology was going to save us and our phones were going to solve every problem. And guess what? They don't. Same chapter. Let's just stay on that chapter. You you talk about how changing your body is often a stepping stone to changing your mind. Our audience, health and wellness coaches, people that care about health and wellness performance, they're probably pretty familiar with that concept in their own lives. But can you tell us a little bit more about what is happening via that process of body first often starts to shift the mind? It was an interesting moment. So, so what happened was I went out and gathered all of these life stories, hundreds of them. And then I had a thousand hours of interviews. I had 6,000 pages of transcripts. And I realized that I, I needed help. I needed more eyes on this. So I got a team of 12 people and we, um, we spent a year coding these for 57 different variables, high points, low points, how long transitions take, what was the biggest emotion that you struggled with, what advice from friends was most valuable. And so we're in the middle of this. And these all kind of relate to questions that I ask. And I say to this team I have here in my office, so tell me something that you've noticed from coding these stories that I didn't notice while asking them. And right away, this young computer scientist raised his hand. He said, people move. That was interesting. I actually didn't have a question about moving. Like emotions, I had a question about. Friends, I had a question about. Phases, I had a question about. Like I, I, I thought I had heard everything and I recognized everything, but I hadn't realized this. And we went back through the entire 6,000 pages and found that sure enough, 61% of the people that I talked to moved in some way. 
which is even more remarkable considering I wasn't even asking for it. I wasn't you know, leading the witnesses in any way. People just talked about it. What is moved? They exercise. They sometimes physically moved. They repainted their houses. They repainted their offices. They did something that embodied the transition. And so that leads to what you're talking about, which is an idea that is both new in the contemporary research that the body knows the score, that your body feels things and begins to make changes before you even emotionally or mentally recognize them. So on the one hand, that's a new idea that you mentioned that the people who follow this literature may be familiar with, but it's also an old idea. Um, It's an old idea in psychology because William James first said it a century ago, right? Oh, I'm running. I see a bear. I'm running. I must be scared right? You're running before you have time to even identify the fact that you are scared. Mm -hmm. That's why this is called the James Lang theory, because it was simultaneously discovered. But also, if you go back 3,000 years ago, and you know from my own life, having, you know, spent a lot of time in the Middle East, written five books about religion, that the greatest breakthrough in, in, in almost every scriptural tradition involves people going out into the wilderness, Abraham leaving his family's home mm-hmm. and going down to the promised land. The Israelites leaving Egypt and going into the desert. Jesus goes into the desert. Yeah. Paul goes on the road to Damascus. Odysseus goes into the desert. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, goes into the wilderness, as does Hercules, as does Orpheus. The, the, over and over again, the great stories involve this kind of physical, you know, kind of transportation, transformation. And so sometimes you can't actually go on a big journey but your body can go on the journey itself. And that that physicality leads the change a lot of time. And the way often people express this is kind of fake it till you make it, which isn't exactly what what, what happens physiologically. But we know because of mirror neurons, right? If If I right now say jump, you may not jump, but your brain is simulating jumping, even in response to the words. We know that if I jump, if I raise my right hand, you're going to raise your right hand. If I lean in, you're going to lean in. We know that mirror neurons have us physically move, but we also know it's just the words themselves. If I say I'm going to jump, my mind will simulate that and, and trigger the emotions in the synapses in my brain, and I will feel like I'm jumping. And so what's important about that is actually even telling a story about leaning in, moving forward, making progress, going through change will actually simulate the change. So even that's why I said earlier, like no matter if a lifequake is voluntary or involuntary, if you lean in and go through the transition, you are going to get through, you're going to get into the transition. It's still going to be difficult, but that's the first step. That's why telling a story, which we keep coming back to, is so important because if you tell a story that has a positive constructive ending, you will have a positive constructive ending, not just because you're telling yourself that, but because your body is going to simulate what you're saying. All right, let's talk midlife crisis. <laughs> you, oh, did, you did a great job with this one. And what I think, do you mean midlife crisis? Mean, you can't talk about this now because I have an hour. <laughs> you don't have an hour. We, we, you really, you, you dug in, you set the stage, and then you hit us with, uh-uh, not a thing. So walk us through that, because I think most of our listeners are going to be like, wait, what? I'm supposed to be having my midlife crisis now. That was my excuse for that car or, or whatever. But can you give us a short version of what you discovered with, in, in terms of midlife crises? 
this was one of the central moments to this entire five, six, seven year process. I felt like I pulled a book off of the shelf one day and the bookshelf moved and there was another library. <laughs> I'm talking about that thing that you have in kids stories, right? Apparently Dan Brown has one in his castle uh, in France. And the, and the book that I pulled off and the room that I went through is that all lives, all cultures have an expectation that lives have a paradigmatic shape. Okay. Like this is something we don't talk about that we should be talking about in the ancient world. They did not have linear time. So they think that life is cyclical, right? To every season, turn, turn, turn. The Bible in the West introduces the idea of linear time. And so by the middle ages, they believe life is a staircase up to middle age and a staircase down. And lest you think I'm making this up, as you know, in the book, in Life is in the Transitions, I actually have visual representations of a handful of dozens that I found that show that life is a staircase up to middle age where you peak and then it's straight downhill from there. What is that saying? There's no new love at 40. There's no starting a new venture at 50. There's no relocating at 60 and 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 uh, and, and buying uh, you know and, and buying a BNB. There's no traveling in your 70s. Straight up, straight down. And what's interesting about that is it's the opposite of the whole midlife crisis myth that we were told in the 20th century. So when we get to the when we get to the birth of science in the late 19th century, we are told that everything follows a series of stages and phases in chronological order, okay? Freud says psychosexual stages. We go back, Piaget says children go through developmental stages. Freud said they're psychosexual stages. You have Erickson who says the eight stages of moral development. You have the five stages of grief. You have the hero's journey. These are all linear constructs. They were popular because that was the industrial age and that was the model. I have quotes in my book from Erickson who says that the eight stages of development were built on the conveyor belt because that, you know, Ford, et cetera, that was the model of what the economy was like. And this reaches its peak in the 70s when Gail Sheehy writes a book uh, called Passages in which she literally plagiarizes research from Roger Gould in UCLA. I'm not making this up. No, I thought that was interesting. And he won, and he got ten. He got ten percent of passages. And Dan Levinson at Yale that says everyone does the same thing in their twenties, everyone does the same thing in their thirties, and then everyone has a midlife crisis. And this was so restrictive, we were told the midlife crisis must begin by thirty-nine and must end by forty-five and a half. Like that's what it said. <laughs> and this was all a bunch of bunk. The Dan Levinson research at Yale got you know God rest his soul was based on 40 people in New Haven, Connecticut, all men. The guy who originally coined the phrase midlife crisis, Elliot Jock, didn't even talk to anybody. He read 300 biographies of famous men. And he said, I didn't read biographies of famous women, not that there were that many at that time anyway, because they have menopause and menopause throws the whole thing off. Like that shows you what a total artificial construct this was. And yet that book sells 20 million copies. Library of Congress says one of the 20 most influential books of the 20th century. And even in my conversations, 40 years later, people said, oh, I had my first midlife crisis at 27 and a half and my, you know, and my, my last one at 52. Well, that just shows you how artificial this is. It's been looked at by researchers and researchers. It's wrong. It's literally wrong. And worse, it's dangerous because it says that we only have crises at birthdays that end in zero and that we have a midlife crisis. And that's the only kind of crisis we have. Think about the pandemic. We're all in a crisis. Sure. 
if you're between 39 and 45, it's a midlife crisis. But what if you're 27? And what if you're 67? Or what if you're 15, like my twin daughters? Some people are born into crisis if their parents are divorced or there's an addiction. Some people lose a parent when they're a teenager. I talked to a guy now who's a tenured professor at MIT who was addicted to heroin in his 20s. Like the defining event in his life was getting clean after living in his car and being estranged from his family at 26. And I graphed every transition people did. Like I did the math and they are all over. That's why I call it the whenever life crisis. That is the wrong model. The way to look at it is we go through what I call disruptors, three dozen in the course of our lives. I have a whole deck of, I call it the deck of disruptors, 52 possible disruptors. And by the way, that number is higher. The last time this was done, a stress test in the 60s, there were like 37. Mm -hmm. It's up to 52. They didn't even have divorce, changing religions, you know, entrepreneurship, starting your own venture, sexual or, 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 you know, or domestic assault, all these things that are kind of the front lines of our life today weren't even on the last yeah, time. Anyone I thought it was a good list. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating, huh? So uh, we go through one of these every three dozen in our lives, one every 12 to 18 months. That's more often than most people visit a dentist. And most of them we get through, but one in 10 of those three to five times in our lives, we get these life quakes. And not only do we have them three to five times in our lives, something else, by the way, that, I, that is simply not in the literature that I have read and I have tried to read all the literature is they tend to clump, right? So just when you lose your job, you know, your wife gets cancer, right? Just when you're going to move, your mother-in-law has uh, cataract surgery and your daughter is found to have an anxiety disorder. So uh, that's what's going on now. People feel like it's a a clump. I call this a pileup. And so we just feel like we're being hit from all directions. And it's just simply put, not based in time. And to base it in time is to assign a set of reasons. The original idea for the midlife crisis was that we had turned the corner in midlife and we were beginning to look at our mortality. And that was the reason for it. That is not the reason for it. Some people might have that, but it is simply not fair or right or helpful to say that confronting our death creates a midlife crisis. It can be any number of things. It can happen any time in your life. It's time we move beyond that. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. You, you, you introduced this idea of voluntary versus involuntary transitions. Just curious, as you were talking to folks, did you see any pattern where those who sought out kind of got themselves out of the, the comfort zone, if you will, or, or chose to get uncomfortable, either had less frequent involuntary or maybe more meaningful involuntary things taking place? I'm thinking of the woman who really difficult childhood ended up going back, getting her PhD, I just wonder if she evening classes to do that, the whole, the whole deal, did she then, and I know you didn't follow him this long, but would your, would your theory be your hypothesis be that she would then see less impactful involuntary because she had gotten so uncomfortable to pursue this voluntary pursuit down the road? Well, I would say that's Christy Moore from Savannah. It's a great story. She hated education. Uh, yeah. Tended to get sick. On and yet. Part not get on the bus. And then she gets pregnant in high school, drops out, has three children. Her husband works at Kentucky Fried Chicken. She has a, uh, she has a paper route. They have to change church. He gets sick, it seems like. He gets sick and they are on the brink of, uh, of tumbling into debt. And she's at the public library with toddler time for her child. The toddler toddles off. She's pregnant. She reaches over. She grabs the first book she can find. It's Wuthering Heights. It takes her two times to read it because she can't understand it. Next book is to kill a mockingbird. And she makes her way through this entire shelf of classics. And here she finds the answer she's looking for. 
she's going to go back to school, like the one thing she hated. So she goes and gets an undergraduate degree, crying in the car between classes, studying at the ballet practices and the baseball games. Uh, then she gets a master's degree. And as you said, she goes on to get a doctorate. She goes from GED to PhD. And now she has a job counseling non-traditional students on the advantages of living a non-linear life. So what I would say in response to that question is that some people are, you know, it's, I, I didn't actually code for this, so I don't right. feel like I have the, the data to kind of be definitive. Some people tend to be what I call transition positive, like that they are more open to it in some level. But in general, I would discourage that. I don't think that that's a helpful construct because this, I would say, is the number one kind of change that I personally went through is that when I went into this project, I figured that the way we handle a medical setback or a job loss or um, uh, the death of a loved one or cancer or an addiction, one in, one in four of the stories that I heard have addiction, um, had addiction in some way, which was a really high number, um, at least to my eye. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was just wrong about this. It turns out that the toolkit for navigating losing your legs and getting cancer twice and losing your job and having your house burned down and going through a tornado turned out to be the same. So they're the same, whatever the impulses and uh, your kind of impetuses and also the same depending on whether it was a voluntary or involuntary that the stages the long goodbye the messy middle the new beginning are the same the tools you know identify the emotions ritualize them shed habits create so i would say generally speaking it's the same some people might be slightly better or slightly worse but i don't think that they're slightly better or worse overall i still think that they're slightly better or worse at one part of the process like people are good at saying goodbye and then they get stuck in the messy middle but a lot of people are bad at saying goodbye. They're people pleasers. They stay around too long. They mm. stay in a toxic relationship longer than they should. They cannot get, uh, you know, they cannot break the addiction or the habit or the victimizing or whatever it is. And then once they say, once they get, say goodbye, they're good at the messy middle. I talked to a guy, Rob Adams, who uh, was hired from the Midwest and went to run the Simon Pierce Glass Company in Vermont. He starts a month after 9-11, sales drop a third in the first quarter. He should have left. I mean, in fact, the family was kind of giving him signals. It's time for you to go. But he ignored them. And he's like, I liked being a leader. I liked being a mentor. I, I liked my colleagues. And then after a year, when they finally pushed him out, he was like, okay, well, I've said goodbye. Now I'm a consultant. Like, I know what to do now. I'm going to make lists. I'm going to talk to six people. And within six months, he'd moved, moved his family to Africa to take over a nonprofit. So um, uh, he's bad at saying goodbye, but good at the messy middle. You know, some people are even bad at the new beginning, which shocked me. As you know, I tell this wonderful story about Lisa Ludovici, who grew up in a broken home. Uh, her mother was disinterested, didn't even come to her college graduation. She lives in her car for a while. She becomes a high-powered internet ad executive. And she also suffered three migraines a week. Wow. Between age three and 43. And she logs onto a conference call one day and the people are, overhears her colleagues who don't know she's there saying how sour she is. She goes home, comes through her Amex bills, decides she can save money, walks in the next day, quits on the spot, cuts her cable, stops going out to eat, stops going shopping. She's watching like over the rabbit ears, local access television, and she sees someone talking about being a life coach, interestingly enough, given the conversation we're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah. 
He goes to Santa Fe. She enrolls in life coach school. On day one, the teacher walks in and her head's on the table. Lisa says, and the teacher says, what are you doing? And she says, oh, don't worry. I'm having a migraine. I have them, you know, three times a week. No big deal. Teacher says, come with me. Takes her into her office, puts Lisa in a chair, hypnotizes her. Lisa has never had a migraine since. And today, she's the country's, one of the country's leading medical hypnotists, working with the VA, helping people with all manner of diseases. So she's gone through this epical, frankly, inspiring life change, and she's completely afraid of telling anybody else about it. She says to me, she writes and rewrites her LinkedIn profile like every day for six months because she thinks her friends will find it weird <laughs> that she has this like a kooky health and wellness job. Um, and finally, she presses send and she's totally liberated. So for her, the long goodbye wasn't that hard. Even the messy middle, the new beginning was the hardest. Because for her, it was difficult to tell people that she was this new person. Yeah. Yeah. All right, my friend, a couple more. The way you end your book, I got to tell you, I, my wife was sitting in the room and I just about jumped out of my chair and said, you got to hear this. I'm going to read it. It's the last couple sentences. And I'd love to have you share why you chose that as your final message to the reader. Dream another dream. It's time once more to utter the most spellbinding, life-affirming words we can utter. The words that suggest a story is coming, maybe even a fairy tale, once upon a time. Wow. I just love that. That was perfect. Talk to us about that. Let me get writerly for a second and say the <laughs> happiest <laughs> moment for me when writing a book. I once, read, I once heard someone say about writing that a satisfying, this was Amos Oz, actually, an Israeli novelist. And he said that the most satisfying part about being a writer is you get the, you get the joy of, of, of completing something many, many times. Like when you have the idea, it's satisfying. Like when you do, in this case, when I did the interviews, it was satisfying. When I found out the patterns, it was satisfying. Like when you, when you know where the story is going to begin, it's satisfying. And when you know where the story is going to end, it's satisfying. So for me, the most satisfying thing about having written a book is I don't have to worry about the first sentence or the last sentence. Like those are the ones that I spend 50% of my time thinking about where it's going to begin and where it's going to end. And this whole project is a project. Having read that, you know, since you just read the last sentence, I'm going to read the first, actually, because this was also hard for me to know where to begin. Um, and this is the introduction, the life story project, what happens when our fairy tales go awry. I used to believe that phone calls don't change your life until one day I got a phone call that did. It was from my mother. Your father is trying to kill himself. So that's a story about where this began. That my dad, who was never depressed a minute in his life, tries to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. And it's so perfect since this conversation began with the end. and I'm going to end with the beginning. And what happened was we were struggling with business and with medical, but I'm the story guy. Like, that's how I think about the world and stories. So one Monday morning, I sit at my computer and on a whim, I'm like, maybe it'll help my dad to tell his story. And so I sent him a question. Tell me the toys you played with as a kid. Now, my dad can't move his fingers at this point, right? He's got Parkinson's. He thinks about it all week. He dictates the story to Siri. Siri spits it out like he edits it. And he's got a little one-page story about making paper airplanes in World War II. And then I'm like, well, this worked. I'll send him another one. Tell me about the house you grew up in. Mm. 
And then how'd you become an Eagle Scout and how'd you join the Navy and how'd you meet mom? And this goes on for five years until this man who had never written anything longer than a memo backed into writing an autobiography. And I got very interested that when in times of difficulty, what we do is we have to rethink and rewrite our life story. Turns out there's this whole field of narrative gerontology, a field of narrative adolescence, how adolescents like my own children now begin to tell their own story, narrative medicine. So this story becomes the story of storytelling and how we think about stories. And so what I was sort of wrestling against was the idea that our lives are a fairy tale and that we think that we're a hero and there's a happy ending and we forget the fact that there's a wolf in the middle of the story. And so this idea, and it turns out that the Italians have an expression called lupus in fabula, the wolf in the fairy tale. And they use that to mean speak of the devil, like speak of the devil and the devil will show up. Like just when life is going along swimmingly, along comes a wolf or an ogre or a dragon or downsizing or whatever it is. And so this whole project for me was a sort of an exercise in modern day fairy tale telling. How do you begin a fairy tale? You know, you begin a fairy tale with a certain phrase. So somewhere in the middle, not the beginning and not at the end, somewhere in the middle, this idea occurs to me that the greatest sign that we're through a life quake and that we're on the other side of a life transition is to start your story over again. Mm. I like this phrase. I almost called this book this, but I like this idea that we're in between dreams. And when you're in a transition, you're in between dreams and you have to make up a new dream. And finally, you've said goodbye to the old you. You've gone through this messy middle of shedding habits and creating new ones. You're ready to unveil your new self. And the best way to do that is to update your life story. And then once you update your life story, once you say, I've added a new chapter in which I learned something from this value time and I'm ready to move forward, well, guess what? The chapter is over. And now you're back to, to me, the biggest stress of all, which is how do you begin the next chapter? Well, what if the next chapter is going back to the beginning? and creating a new fairy tale. And what's the way we begin a fairy tale? Once upon a time. I love that. That's so good. Bruce, this was fun. My friend, you, you did a fantastic job with the book. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in the intro, outro as well, just to make sure people can track it down. What's the best way for folks to keep up with you is to keep track of what you're doing? Well, first of all, this is a pleasure. I, I actually like the fact that we did this inside out and upside down and backwards and forwards, <laughs> and it shows us that our lives are nonlinear, and so are our stories. Um, I'm Bruce Feiler. It's B-R-U-C-E-F-E-I-L-E-R. I'm at Bruce Feiler at Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn and, and Facebook. And the most, most satisfying part of this process is hearing which stories resonate with people and which tools uh, are most valuable to people. One of the things I found and, and talking to people about their transitions is everybody is good at some of these, but not everybody does all of them and yeah. everybody wants to get better. Yeah. And so kind of my hope here is that, you know, my big message I would say to people is the transitions work. You know, 90% of the people that I talked to got through their transition. So whatever you're struggling with, if you come on this journey and look at this book, I think we're going to give you things that can be helpful or helpful to the loved ones around you. Or if you have health and wellness clients, yeah. whatever they're struggling with, because we can get through this and we can do them better and more effectively. There, there is wisdom out there, and the best way to get through this is together. Beautiful. Bruce, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What a pleasure. Thank you for your thoughtfulness and for digging in, and look forward to hearing the response. What an honor to have Bruce Feiler join us. For those of you who've been tuning into what's happening over the YouTube coaching channel, you know we've been doing a series of short videos on this very topic, Transitions Through the Stages of Life. So this interview was incredibly timely. I hope you found it 
sparked some sort of ideas and hope in your own life and the things that you're going through. By the way, if you'd like to check out the videos, you can find them at youtube.com slash coaching channel. Thank you for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching and a special thanks to those of you who have been kind enough to share it with others. Next week's guest is a man who holds the American record for both the marathon and the half marathon, Olympian Ryan Hall. For those of you who have followed Ryan over the years, you know it's been an interesting journey. We get into all of it, including how he went from a 135-pound marathon runner to bulking up after retiring from running to the point that men's health actually featured his pictures. It's a fun conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. And of course, next Monday is our latest five-minute weekly catalyst, the brief bonus episodes that we hope are providing you with some encouragement and that spark as you head into your day and your week. Now let's go get better than yesterday. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute signing off. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over on the new YouTube coaching channel.